Does anybody know what a feedback loop is? A feedback loop. Do any of the musicians know what feedback is? Could you explain it? Feedback in, in layman's terms. Feedback or feedback loop? Either one. Yeah, it's a it's a cycle really that loud. feeds into itself. Yeah, and then that's the really loud wine. Loud, high pitched wine. Uh, another example of that would be when I don't pay a bill on time, mm -hmm. I'm charged a fee. So now I have less money because they charge me a fee. And so now the next bill is gonna be harder for me to pay. And I'm probably gonna miss out and get another late fee, and I'm gonna have less money. And so that would be a, another negative feedback loop. Only if you're not, you don't have a lot of money. <laughs> right. A positive feedback loop with money would be like compound interest. I put money, uh, I invest it, and if I get 5% back every year, it starts compounding on itself and it's a positive feedback loop. Can anybody think of any other examples of a feedback loop? feeds into itself and kind of is like a perpetual motion device. Nature, it happens often in nature. When an animal is introduced to something, uh, it will throw off the eco balance and the population of something will either go really up and continue to feed on itself or it'll go way down. Um, so that's a feedback loop. It's something that kind of feeds on itself. Do you, have you thought of one? Uh, an echo is kind of a feedback loop. Kind of. Ooh, yeah, it's a sin minute. roll. A what? A sin roll. A That's sin what roll. I like to call it. You know, it's like you're supposed to clean your room, and then your parents are coming, so then you lie. Mm. And then the lie just keeps getting stronger because you know it's like now your dad's coming and your mom already caught you, and so then you tell your dad a lie. So your siblings come and tell you, hey, you know you're lying. You're like, no, I'm not. And it's just like, adding on repetitive. That's a perfect transition because tonight we're looking at the book of Judges and we're looking at how Judges teaches us about the negative feedback loop of sin. This negative downward spiral of sin. Judges also teaches us about God's sovereignty over it and God's salvation from it in Christ alone. So where are we? How have we got to this point in Israel's history. After the disappointment of the fall in Genesis, the descent into evil, uh, mankind's just rampant evil is spreading over the world. God floods the earth, saves mankind through Noah. Then he again chooses a man, Abraham, to reveal himself to, to make promises to, and some of the promises he makes to Abraham are that he'll make a nation out of him and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. After generations of disappointment and kind of a, 
Earth spiraling out of control, that's really hopeful news that we get when we're reading the story of the Bible from the beginning all, all the way through. It's so hopeful because of who God is. God is sovereign, and he's, that means he's ruling the world without hindrance, with total control. And it's hopeful to hear promises because God is sovereign and he's faithful. He's not unchanging. So when he makes a promise, he's both powerful and able to keep the promise, and he's unchanging, so he won't waver from the promise. A dad, for example, an earthly dad, can make a promise, but he might not be all powerful enough to perform, to come through on that promise. I promise we'll go on a vacation. But then circumstances outside of his control make it so that you can't go on vacation. A dad can also change his mind. Either sinfully or for other reasons, a dad can change his mind. He can make a promise and then not deliver on the promise. But God is perfectly sovereign, all-powerful, and he's faithful and unchanging. So when God makes promises, we can have hope in them, we can be encouraged by them, and we can trust in them because of that. So that gives us hope. So God makes promises to Abraham, and as we've been walking through the first six books of the Bible, we keep seeing God keeping these promises. We've seen God save Abraham's family by bringing them down to Egypt to save them from a famine. Then he saves that same people from slavery in Egypt through miracles, through the Passover, through Moses. Then he delivers on his promise to give him the Holy Land through Joshua. So that brings us through the first five books of the Bible, and then Joshua. We keep seeing God's sovereignty and his faithfulness through all of this. Uh, he's guiding history. He's keeping his promises. And it's so encouraging and hopeful. The train seems to be on the right track, just barreling forward to the fulfillment of God's promises. And then we get to Judges. Throughout this story of this nation of Israel, we've seen them complain here and there. They sinned in the wilderness. God held them up because of that. But now things are just going to totally go off the rails. As you read the book of Judges, you're just left with this feeling of hopelessness. The book goes just from bad to worse and ends with no resolution of hope. After Joshua dies, things are just going poorly. The people start off by disobeying God. God tells them when they go into the promised land, Joshua brings them into the promised land, they conquer the land. God tells them to wipe out all the people in the cities in the promised land. All the wicked people that were living there. They were worshiping idols, sacrificing their children to false gods, and being just about as wicked as people could be. And God doesn't want these people influencing his people. He knows that if they live with the Israelites, they'll tempt them to do the very same things that they're doing. So God orders them to be wiped out. But Israel disobeys. They don't kill all the people in the land. And the result is this cycle of wandering from God to idolatry. Then God punishes them by bringing in another nation to oppress them. The people cry out. God raises up a judge. That's where the book gets its name. God keeps raising up judges to deliver them. He saves the people through the judge. And then the people just go back and sin again. And the cycle starts all over. It's actually summed up. The whole thing, the whole book, 
in chapter 2. So we're going to read all of chapter 2 of Judges. So open to Judges. And as you're turning there, if you're already open, you can look at towards the second half of chapter 1. You can see Israel failing these promises. It goes through all these tribes. Uh, in verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheon. 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. 30, Zebulon did not drive out. 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back to the hill country. So we see Israel not being obedient. They're not coming through on their end of, what, of this covenant, this agreement that, they, that God has made with them. And so now we come to chapter 2. <coughs> now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of the inheritance in Timnath-Hares, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised them up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by the gro their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people 
have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord God left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Judges is meant to be depressing and hopeless. There's no solution to this cycle of idolatry and rebellion. In fact, the book ends, if you want to flip all the way to the back of the book, the last verse says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say everyone did what was right. It says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And what they think is right is very, very often wrong. And the last story in Judges is about a sin so horrendous and so immoral that it actually leads to civil war in this new nation of Israel. Judges is a really depressing book. There are heroes in Judges. The whole middle section of the book, basically after where we just read, uh, is about these judges that God raised up that we know from Sunday school. We all know Samson. He doesn't cut his hair and is strong. We, we may know Gideon, who has the fleece, who tests the Lord with the, with the Lord with the fleece, and then he delivers the people too. But even the judges, there are 12 cycles of these judges, even the judges themselves are deeply flawed, sometimes outright wicked individuals. Judges is a depressing book about the downward spiral of Israel, a downward spiral of people that are a lot like you and me. What can we learn from this spiral? Three things. One, God's sovereign over it. God is sovereign over this downward spiral. Two, sin is dangerous. And three, we need a better judge. We need a better judge. First, remember the sovereignty of God over all things, but even over the nation of Israel up to this point. God has, look at verse 1, I brought you up from Egypt. I will never break my covenant with you. And in verse 3, I will not drive them out before you. God's sovereign over this. He's sovereign over all the good that's come to Israel. And here we're seeing God sovereign even over the bad. God is just as sovereign in judges over this downward spiral as he is in Joshua, the book before, where we see this mighty conquest. And he's working all of this for his redemptive purposes. Remember, we're studying the Bible as one story about God's glory by redeeming a people in Christ. God's sovereign over salvation from Egypt and in the thorns in the side of Israel. There's a question for you guys. I'd like to hear a few answers. What does that mean for your life? If God is sovereign over the good things that happen to Israel and the bad, what does that mean for your life? What part of your life is God sovereign over? Jeanette. He hasn't forgotten where I'm at right now. It means he hasn't forgotten where you are. Amen. Any other thoughts? 
what that truth of God's sovereignty means for your life? Daniel? He knows exactly what we're going through. And it's not like he just threw us off the deep end. Like, he knows what's going on, and he knows what we can't handle. Yeah. Just, just like he hasn't left Israel all of a sudden in the book of Judges. He hasn't left us. No matter how, what our situation is. James. He always knows who we are. He always knows who we are. He, James, knows you better than you know you. He thinks of you more rightly than you think of yourself. God knows me and thinks about me better than I think about myself. I think probably a little more highly of myself than I really am. God knows us perfectly. That's awesome. Is God sovereign over the good in your life? The blessings that he gives you? Yes. Is he sovereign over the bad? Yes. Yes. There's a question for us. I'd like to hear a few answers. Which is easier to forget? And what does it look like when you forget? That God's sovereign over your life. Which one of those, the good times or the bad times, is easier to forget that God is ruling over? Joel. Bad times. Okay, and what does it look like maybe for you when you forget that God is ruling over the bad times? Um, it like feels super scary and I feel like alone maybe. Scary? Feeling alone. And alone is a very scary not a good place to be. Yeah. Augie? <clears throat> it's easier for you to forget God's sovereignty in the good times. What does that look like? What does that tend to look like in your heart and your life? It's like when you're really happy, you don't really, you don't normally think about what makes you happy. Like, you don't think that, oh, the reason I'm happy is because God wanted me to be happy. Yeah. Mm. Any other thoughts? I think for me it's me both. Mm -hmm. So in the bad times, I feel a lot of panic um, when I forget about God's <coughs> And in the good times, um, I feel empty when I forget about God's Yeah. Yeah. Ditto. 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 Yeah. yeah, the Psalms say that the fool says in his heart there is no God. And we're acting like a fool every time we sin. We're forgetting that God is sovereign, that he's um, omnipresent, that he's watching, that he knows, and that he cares. God's sovereignty over the bad and the good gives us hope. Because it means that there's an author of our lives, and that means that our lives have meaning and purpose. If you sat down to write a story, you didn't know where it was going, and you just started kind of like spilling out words onto the page, stream of consciousness, there's not much meaning and significance to what's coming out. You don't know how what the words you're writing on this page is going to affect the characters or the story on the next page. But if you sit down and before you start to write, you think through the plot, you think about the characters and you think very carefully about the ending. That gives meaning to the whole story and to every little individual part of the story. Each word you write, each event that happens, 
is leading, is contributing to something in the plot and in the lives of the characters. Your life, every one of your lives, has meaning because God is the author of it. He made you in his image. He created you for a purpose. And he's writing each day, each moment of your lives with that purpose in mind. So don't fall for the lie that things don't matter. Things aren't happening randomly by chance. Things aren't out of control. Things are moving in a God-glorifying direction with a God-glorifying purpose. But that doesn't mean we aren't responsible. One caveat is that we are still very responsible for every action, every thought, every word. In fact, we're more responsible because God is that sovereign author over our lives. Because of that, what you do matters. So we learn from Judges that God is sovereign over the good and the bad that's happening in Israel, and the good and the bad in our lives. The second lesson we learn from Judges is the danger of sin. The danger of sin. What did we read that the people did, or actually the people didn't do in chapter 1? What, what didn't the people do in chapter 1? What's their sin? Oh, they didn't obey God. By, correct, by? Um, they didn't take out everyone. <clears throat> yeah, by leaving people in the land. They didn't obey God. They didn't think it was a big deal to allow some of the Canaanites <coughs> to stay alive and live near them. The problem is that the Canaanites worshipped idols. They didn't follow the Lord. They didn't care about his law. And they lived however they wanted. And after long enough, what do the people of Israel do? Who do they start to look like? The they start to look just like them. Uh, you can look at chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who are around them. They abandoned God, the only true God, the God who had done so much for them, so much for them as a nation, so much for their fathers that they knew and started worshiping false gods. By the end of the book, this idolatry gets so bad that they've devolved into rape and murder and civil war. It's horrific. And they're at that point and they don't really realize how things have got to this point. How are we at war with one another? How did it get to that point? It got to that point because a little sin will always lead to greater sin. A little sin will always lead to greater sin. A little looking with lust. A little jealousy. A little gossip. It's just a little bit of anger. But none of those things stay little for long. I wonder if you're sitting here right now and you don't really know how it's gotten this far in your life. How it's reached this point. You might be sitting here trapped in sin tonight. You might be sitting here in the same cycle as Israel. 
sinning, dealing with the consequences, feeling sorry, getting another chance, saying you'll try really hard next time, and then running right back to your very same sin. Let me ask you some questions about that. What people do you spend time with? Israel got in trouble because of the people they were letting around them. What people do you spend time with? Who do you listen to in person and online? Who are you listening to? What habits do you know are wrong but don't seem like that big a deal to you? Examine every little part of your life. Sin and Satan never presents sin in all its full ugliness right up front. It always slips in to little cracks. Little cracks turn into bigger and bigger cracks. Do you know how cracks usually form? I don't know about here in Texas. Usually cracks form in concrete or in rock by a little water getting into a crack. And then what happens, Georgia? Uh, the water freezes. It, and freezes. It, and it expands. And when it, uh, it, then it just stays in there and it melts and then freezes, expands. And it's this cycle of water getting in, freezing and expanding, and the crack gets a little bit bigger. Oh. It works the same way with sin. Water never freezes in Texas. <laughs> it will this week. <laughs> sin sleeps, slips into cracks in the heart we think it's not that big a deal and we start excusing a little bit more sin and a little bit more sin and it gets bigger and bigger until it's out of control and the end of sin is a hard heart cut off communion from God and in the end judgment and hell but it never presents like that up front if you're entertaining a little bit of sin or a lot of sin, if you're in a cycle of sin, or maybe if you're just starting to dabble, there's one thing you need to do. Repent. You need to repent now. To repent means to turn from that sin. It means to see your sin, to hate your sin, to confess your sin, and to turn away from your sin. See your sin. With some help from Thomas Watson, we'll look a little bit at repentance really quick. See your sin. Sin is not a small thing. You have to see it for what it is, a dangerous thing. Playing around with sin is like playing around with snakes. You have to see it rightly as dangerous before you can repent of it. How do you see your sin? One, the best way is to compare yourself to God's law. We looked at God's law when we looked at Exodus. If you're not sure if you're sinning, how you're sinning, look at God's law. Compare your life, where you're measuring up, where you're falling short. See your sin. Hate your sin. Don't just try and stop sinning, but really secretly want to be doing that same sin. You have to hate your sin. It's not like promising to stop eating cake. Because cake is always going to taste good still. Once you see sin for what it is, mud and ugly, then you will hate that. You don't want to go to it anymore. See your sin, hate your sin, confess your sin. Confess your sin to the Lord. If you want, confess your sin to someone in your family, 
to a trusted friend, to Lily, to Ben, to me, to Scott or Peyton, confess your sin, someone you know and trust, same gender, whether or not you confess to other people, bring sin to the light. All of us, the people I just named, were once caught in the very same cycles of sin that you guys may find yourself in. I don't know, but you may find yourself in. Nothing will surprise us. Nothing will shock us. Nothing will upset us. I, can, I know that my sin, that the cycles of sin that I have been trapped in are worse than the unknown sins that you guys are committing. I know my sin, and I know that it's worse. Confess your sin, and finally, turn from your sin. If you're driving in Texas and you're trying to get to Minnesota, and you start seeing more desert, and you start seeing signs in Spanish, and you see the Mexican border, what does that mean? (laughs) You're going the wrong way. You need to turn around. The longer you keep driving the same way, the further back you'll have to go. The final step in repentance is actually turning from your sin. Turning around. Stopping. Making a U-turn. And going in the opposite direction. The longer you stay on the path of sin, the further you'll be going, the further you'll have to turn back. Today. Today is the day to turn from sin. Look at God's sovereignty over the sinful cycle in Israel. Look at the danger of sin in Israel and in our hearts and lives. And all of that shows us our need for a greater judge. Turning from your sin isn't enough. When the people cried out to God, they needed someone to deliver them. They needed God to raise up someone to defeat their enemy. God in his sovereignty allows this nation to fall over and over. And he does this in part to warn us about sin, in part to show the need for a savior, a better judge. Your sin is your enemy. Your sin is your enemy. And Jesus himself tells us in John 8 that whoever commits sin is slave to sin. Slaves don't just get to choose to free themselves. They need someone to come and free them. The judges in Israel freed people from their oppressors. But the judges in Israel didn't deal with the problems that got them there in the first place. What was the problem that got Israel there in the first place? A little sin. A little disobedience. Their problem was their sin and their hard, disobedient hearts. They had a sin problem. They had a heart problem. And the judges might have delivered them from Moab, might have delivered them from the Palestinians, but they didn't deal with their heart problem. And so every time a judge died, they just fell right back in it. Look at verse 3, chapter 2. Do you have a thorn in your side? Do you have sin that you just can't seem to pluck out? Look in verse 14. Do you feel sold into the hands of your enemy so that you can no longer withstand your enemies? Are you fighting hard against them and failing? Or maybe have you completely just given yourself over to them so you aren't fighting sin anymore but serving sin? 
God may be sovereignly bringing you to that very point tonight. He might be bringing you to despair. Judges seems like a hopeless book. It should cause you to be hopeless when you read it. God might be bringing you to a point of hopelessness in your own sin tonight. He may have left you in this sin so that, like Israel, you might cry out to him. Look at verse 18. Look down halfway through the verse in verse 18. When God's people cry out to him, he's moved to pity. God's not a cold machine. He isn't a computer. He's not a search engine. Israel has a problem. They type it in. Out pops solution. God's a father. God is love. He has pity and compassion. So those who cry out to him will find salvation from a merciful and loving father. And that salvation comes in the form of his very own son who came better than a judge as a shepherd to care for his sheep and even lay down his life for his sheep. John 10 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who's a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees when the wolf, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Salvation from sin, from that downward spiral that every person is trapped in, only comes from the person of Christ. Salvation only comes from Christ. He alone is worthy to substitute his life for yours. You, me, all of us have sinned against God and owe him a debt. We need forgiveness for our sins and forgiveness comes in Christ alone. Think about it. Even if you were able to pull yourself up out of that downward spiral of sin, even if that were possible, you'd still have to answer for all the sin you've already committed. But Jesus' sacrifice forgives, cleanses, and perfects all who trust in him. And so that means every single sin a Christian commits, past, present, or even not yet committed, is forgiven by God. And the good shepherd doesn't leave his sheep to just fall back into sin, to be attacked by wolves, to be attacked by Satan, to just fly off into temptation. He cares for his sheep. He guides his sheep. When they stumble, he lifts them up. When they sin, he forgives them. When they bite, he might discipline them, but always tenderly and always to teach them. And unlike the judges, Christ lives forever. Unlike the judges of the old covenant, who would just let the people fall back into idolatry after they died, back into that spiral, that death spiral of sin, Hebrews chapter 10 says this. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. The promise of the new covenant. I will forget and forgive their sins. I'll give them new hearts. He snatches us out of that spiral and ensures that we don't fall back into it. God promises that everyone who trusts in Christ, he will free from sin. Not only the guilt, but also the power of sin over you. God promises to actually lead you to an upward cycle of holiness. This upward spiral, increasing holiness, love, and joy. Just like going uphill, it will be hard. There will be times of struggle. But it's a promise from God. Like we said, God is unchanging and sovereign. So we can hope in that promise. So if you don't think your life matters, if you don't think God cares about the bad things happening to you, Judges teaches you that God's sovereign over the good and the bad, and that there's meaning in it. If you don't think your sin's that big of a deal, Judges teaches you it's a bigger deal than you think, and it will lead to even bigger deals. If you feel caught in a downward cycle of sin, Judges points us to one man, to Jesus, the better judge, who forgives your sin and deals with your heart problem. Everyone who repents and trusts in him, the perfect judge, will find forgiveness and find themselves to have a new heart with new desires. 1 Peter 1 says that according to his great mercy, he, God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You should leave the book of Judges feeling hopeless if the Bible just stopped right there. If we only got seven books. You may feel hopeless tonight. Turn to Christ and find hope in Him. Tonight. Tonight's the night to break the cycle. Cry out to God. Turn to Christ. He alone did what was right in the Father's eyes. He earned salvation for His people. And He alone promises to be the perfect Savior and perfect judge to all who turn to him in faith. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that teaches us, that instructs us, that corrects us, that gives us hard truths, that points out our sin, and points to the good Savior you've given us in Christ. Help us to continue to have sight of sin, a hatred for sin. Help us to confess our sin and bring it to the light. And help us to turn from our sin and turn to Christ, the Savior you've kindly and lovingly and mercifully provided. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.